Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have a special guest, Bob Johansson. Bob is the author of a new book called Leaders Make the Future, the new leadership skills for an uncertain age. He's a former president and CEO of the Institute for the Future, currently serving on their board and is a distinguished fellow of the Institute. And he has written several books in the past, making him a master 10-year forecaster. We are very lucky to have him here with us today. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Great to be with you. It's wonderful to have you here. Now, where are you today? Well, that's a good question. I have to pause to be sure, but um, I believe now I'm home. Actually, my study in San Mateo, California, I was at the Institute in Palo Alto this morning, and at the moment I'm hopeful that my dog will stay quiet and not bark during the interview. (laughs) Well, that's okay. You know, dogs have opinions, too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, you live in the Bay Area in Northern California, and it seems like the Bay Area is a real... Um, hotbed for big thinkers, um, and I know that the institute is located in Palo Alto. What? How long have you been in the Bay Area? Well, I came out in the '70s and thought it was just going to be for a few years. I grew up in the Midwest and went to the University of Illinois as an undergrad and did my PhD at Northwestern. I uh, went to Divinity School along the way. Um, but I thought I'd come out for just a few years. But it, um, as I've kind of focused on my uh, kind of interest in the long-term future, this is the best place on the planet to do it. So I've gotten increasingly uh, involved in and committed to being here. Well, so let's talk a little bit about why the future matters so much to you. Now, all of us can say, yeah, we care about the future, and you know, we want it to be good, and we want to have influence and effect, but somehow <clears throat> your your interest goes much deeper than that. Tell us about that. Well, it does, and it started a long time ago. I had one of those kind of turning point moments. I was a, um, I was a research assistant um, literally carrying the bags for the world's leading futurists at a conference on religion and the future. Um, and this was when I was a graduate student, and I uh, just got completely intrigued with this idea of thinking about the long-term future and you know, I tried being a university professor and just didn't really have the patience for the teaching side mm-hmm. of that um, and got really intrigued with the idea of doing more futures research and applied futures where I'm working with very large companies and very large organizations thinking about the long-term future, but I'm part of a small network-style think tank 
Um, so we're intentionally small. We're in downtown Palo Alto. We're adjacent to Stanford. But we're focused 10 years ahead. And we've been mm. doing 10-year forecasting now with the Institute celebrating its 43rd birthday on February mm. 11th. So, you know, everybody's probably wondering how good you guys are at forecasting. <laughs> you've been, if you've been doing forecasting for 40 years, yeah. how, how much have you been on the mark? Well, the first thing you have to do is define forecast. Uh, and mm-hmm. for us, a forecast is not a prediction. So mm-hmm. you know, the way we say it is if anyone tells you they can predict the future, you shouldn't believe them, mm-hmm. especially if they're from California. Um, <laughs> but what you can do is a forecast, which is a plausible, internally consistent provocative view of what you think will happen. And we do a base forecast every year called the annual 10-year forecast. And then we do deeper dives into technology, health, and food. So if you just look at those base forecasts, the 10-year forecast is the one we've been doing the longest. That's 40 years. Um, We look back every 10 years and say, how have we done? Um, And about 60 to 75% of our forecasted futures have actually happened, depending on your definition of happened, which is really interesting challenge. Right, right, Um, right. But generally, we're... we're, um, I should say that is um, generally our forecasted futures actually happen, but that's not the way you evaluate a futurist. Uh, the way you evaluate a futurist, um, because you can't predict the future, uh-huh. is whether the forecast provokes insight that leads to better decisions in the present. So when I get evaluated by the CEOs I report to, they always want to know what are the examples of foresight during the last year, what are the insights their company has taken, and what have they done differently. Mm -hmm. And the big lesson from this is the most useful forecasts are those you don't like, uh, that you fight with, even that Mm -hmm. you hope don't happen. So, you know, I hope a number of things in our current forecast do not happen because we'll be smart enough to avoid them. Right. Well, you know, with so much going on in the world, all around the globe, um, with natural resources being threatened, with um, the outbreak of war seeming like it's, you know, inevitable in in every region of the globe, um, you know, with with the population growth, uh, I mean, we could go on and on and on. Someone in your business could get pretty depressed. <laughs> That's true. Um, and just to calibrate, I've been doing this for a little over 30 years now. This is the most frightening 10-year forecast I've ever been involved in. Mm-hmm. And it's the most hopeful. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting how the stakes have gone up. And you're certainly right. You can kind of reel off a long list of things that are um, worse than ever, like the rich-poor gap, like the growth of growing threat of pandemics like bioterrorism, certainly like uh, global climate disruption. There's a series of things we're facing looking 10 years ahead that are unlike and generally more threatening than any generation has faced in history. Um, and, and yet, there's opportunities for connection that we've never seen before, um, opportunities to cooperate, opportunities to engage um, at global levels that were never possible, largely due to um, the Internet and as it evolves into the cloud, um, we've got just some amazing new potential to cooperate um, in addition to some amazing threats. Right. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. There, you know, there's so much um, controversy about um, 
social networking and the and the use of the internet and the risk involved, um, and yet there are so many people simply jumping, diving right in and becoming part of it without really understanding the far-reaching effects necessarily, um, or or even taking advantage of the possibilities of those mm-hmm. far-reaching effects. Um, talk to us a little bit about you know what your belief is in how this can be utilized, how this this whole concept of social network media can be utilized in support of a better world. Yeah. Um, You know, I think that's that's where 10-year forecasting actually helps. To look 10 years ahead, Mm -hmm. you can get a much more clear where things are going a more clear view than you can just by looking around you. And uh, today's world of social media and today's Internet is is very confusing. Um, as a matter of fact, if you're not confused, you're not paying attention. There's so many different <laughs> things going on and so many right. mixed signals. Um, so today's social media are really interesting. Um, they have grown incredibly, particularly Facebook. They've changed the nature of the way we communicate, and that in turn changes society, as Clay Shirky, the leading Internet scholar has pointed out. But today's social media are, are not at all like what social media are going to be like 10 years from now. So if you look 10 years ahead and kind of imagine, well, how is that going to play out 10 years from now, and then what should I be doing now to position myself and my organization to take advantage of it, you can see some pretty obvious things. Like 10 years from now, we're going to have sensors everywhere, they're going to be very cheap, and many of them are going to be in our bodies. So Mm. that's kind of a beginning observation. It's very hard to argue against that forecast. It's almost a sure thing. Well, well, so describe what one of those sensors would be. Well, uh, for example, body sensors, uh, anyone who can afford it will have some form of body dashboard 10 years from now that monitors body performance. Uh, You can already get it in a um, little system called the Fitbit uh, that you wear on your belt and it monitors all of your um, Mm -hmm. basic body functions, including how you sleep at night. And it can feed in then to a digital assistant that can help you. um, The movement here in Silicon Valley is called the quantified self movement uh, that uh, Kevin Kelly and Gary Wolf and others have been stimulating. But it's basically using body sensors to better understand how our bodies are working and hopefully make healthier decisions uh, about them. But the the issue I'm raising is wider. We're going to have sensors everywhere. There's going to be sensors in everything, uh, and they're going to be very cheap. Um, So if you just start from that assumption and then you back off and say, well, you're going to have sensors everywhere, of course we're going to have wireless everywhere. And in 10 years, Mm -hmm. generally, wireless will work better in emerging markets than they do in uh, the so-called developed world. And right. one of the uh, <laughs> sort of ugly little secrets of Silicon Valley that I love to point out is we have lousy cell phone service. Right. So, you know, <laughs> it's you can, true. You can go in uh, most parts of developing of the developing world in Africa, Latin America, rural China, rural India, and get better cell phone service than you can on 280 driving mm-hmm. between San Francisco and San Jose. And I find that charmingly appropriate. <laughs> <in> that <laughs> it keeps us all humble and we realize that a lot of the innovation is going to come from emerging markets and the kind of connectivity we're going to have, particularly in, in the world of the cloud. And I think the big shift from the Internet to the cloud is a shift from 
today's Internet, which is dominated by um, transactions and by early-stage social media, and tomorrow's cloud, which is going to be dominated by reciprocity, basically giving things away and the trust you'll get back even more in return, and, and connectivity that we've, that's never been possible before. So it's going to be possible to reach out to innovation resources in emerging markets to bring together those resources in different ways that were never before possible. But, of course, those same connectivity uh, vectors can be used for disruptive purposes as well. So that's what I mean by the stakes, the stakes being up as you look 10 years, 10 years ahead. Today's social media are interesting in the aggregate, and certainly they're, they're very good for staying in touch with friends and family and, and kind of relatively small groups, but they're not very scalable. So if you look at um, things like the, the revolution that's been happening over the last couple of weeks uh, in Africa um, and the Twitter feeds coming out of that, the Twitter feeds were really fascinating the first day, but by the second or third day, they were completely out of control, and it was hard to manage and hard to understand what was going on unless you were there all the time. So various editors emerged who started editing Twitter feeds and blogging about Twitter feeds. <laughs> that starts to get interesting again. But right <laughs> now, our social media are only crudely scalable, even though in the aggregate, the numbers are very large. Um, so the tools for kind of mixing and matching and connecting and weaving will get so much better as you look as you look 10 years ahead in a cloud environment where where the network is the computer. Mhm. Right. Right. You know that on some level I get that. And on another level um I think to myself, well if everything is in the cloud, the quote cloud, um then doesn't that create more risk? Yes. Yeah. And more opportunity. <laughs> right. Right, right. Yeah. Right. It basically is, is uh, you know, John Gage said it best. He, he, he's the one who coined the phrase, the network is the computer, and he coined it in 1980 when it wasn't actually true. But now it's finally becoming true. Um, and, and that's the big shift where the network is literally the computer. Um, and, and, of course, the young people who are going to introduce us to how to use it are now 14 or so, 14 yeah. or less. So, you know, we define a digital native as, um, well, 14 or 15 or less. And what we say is if you're 25 or less, the definition of a generation is about six years. So mm-hmm. if you're 25, you're very cool, very hip, and very with today's social media, but you're quite out of touch with a 19-year-old. Um, and if you're 19-year-old, wow. you're cool and more hip than the 25-year-old, but you're very out of touch with a 14 or 15-year-old. And in a real sense, it's only those um, 15 or less who are true digital natives. And what communications theorists teach us is whatever media are dominant when you become an adult will shape the rest of your life. So, you know, I'm a boomer. When I became an adult, um, the media world was dominated by lousy situation comedies. And you know, I've been recovering from it ever since. <laughs> All of us have. Um, but these kids are going to come into a world where it's dominated by unbelievably vivid video gaming. Um, yeah. I mean, video gaming, if you compare the interface of today's video games with the interface of a typical office computer, it's about a 70x difference. Whoa. In other words, video games are about 70 times more vivid than... Right. 
these boring office computers that we work with every day. Right. Um, you know, the Mac is better, but still, it's not like a video gaming environment unless you're playing a video game through the Mac. Um, right. But the kids are going to grow up with such expectation about virtuality, about avatars, about connectivity. Um, one of my favorite studies recently was a survey of uh, digital natives, kids 13 or 14, uh, and the question was, what percentage of your time do you spend online? And they didn't understand the question. Oh, wow. Because they're always online. It's sort they're of a stupid online. adult question. They're always um, connected, yeah. They're always connected, and, and you really choose to be disconnected. So that's where we'll be 10 years from now, where you have a cloud overlay on the physical world, uh, where we go when we're online will be the same as where we are when we're offline. Uh, and we'll actually have to choose to be disconnected. And that's kind of another interesting question stream, if you want to go down it at some point, about the kind of growing uh, value of privacy and the importance of reflection abilities. But anyway, there's this, the overall direction is toward hyper-connectivity um, and a generation of kids that actually know how to manage it. And the challenge for us older than the digital natives is to learn from them. You know, I, right. I think the real opportunity here is reverse mentoring. If you're lucky enough to have a digital native as a kid, you've got to be very humble and very uh, much in learning mode around them because they think differently than you do. Uh, right. It's actually a neuro difference. It's not just an attitudinal difference. Their brains actually work differently than ours. Hmm. Um, and we're just figuring out how. Well, let's talk more about that when we come back. Okay. Very near, very near in the future. Okay. In just a few minutes. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. When you are trying to establish your financial plan, there are all sorts of variables that you'll need to take into consideration, from the ever-changing economy and markets to investment risk and your own financial needs. How do you manage all of it to find a plan that'll work for you? Tune in to The Insightful Investor with Bob Pugh. We'll help you iron it all out to help you stick to a financial plan with the knowledge that you need. The Insightful Investor is broadcast live Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America. TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Well, welcome back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Bob Johansson today, the author of Leaders Make the Future, 10 New Leadership Skills for an Uncertain Age. So, Bob, in the last segment, you mentioned that um, in terms of gen- current generation, young generation, and, and current adults, that there is actually a neuro difference in the way we function around all this technology. Um, could you talk a little bit about what that is briefly? Sure. Um, well, just a little bit of context around it. Um, there's one of our core researchers, Jake Dunnigan at the Institute, has been looking at the impact of neuroscience um, on the future. And one of his observations is that if you think 100 years ahead, this will be the century of the brain. Um, and if you think of 100 years back, it was the century of the heart. And we learned so much about the heart. As you look 10 years or 10 or 100 years ahead, it's going to be the century of the brain, but it, the next decade is going to be the decade where neuroscience gets practical. Um, so we're just starting to learn um, in a practical way kind of how our brains influence um, the way we behave and think. But with kids, um, the research is still early. Um, but, for example, Linda Stone's research when she was at uh, Microsoft Research, she found that digital natives had what she calls continuous partial attention. And some adults kind of confuse that with multitasking. It's really very different. What the idea of continuous partial intention, uh, attention is, you hold multiple things in your mind simultaneously, but you have the ability to concentrate as well. Mm. And that's really interesting. And, and when I introduce that concept to parents of digital natives, they all get it immediately. Uh, it's the ability to do multiple things at the same time uh, and still to be able to concentrate. And that, I think, is a different sort of neuroscience, a different way of uh, thinking and perceiving and making, making judgments. Um, and I think it's generally good. Now, there are questions about variables like empathy. Um, and the research is really early on that. There's some um, rather frightening and depressing research that suggests that, that digital natives will be less empathetic. And there's things like the cyberbullying stories that are uh, particularly troubling. Um, but there's also evidence of interactive giving, of engaging uh, through the web in a way that shows great empathy. Um, so right now we don't know. There are, of course, also concerns about social abilities and will kids still be able to communicate face-to-face. Um, I'm generally not very concerned about that. But I think what will happen is kids will teach us that there's different ways to decide which medium is good for what. Face-to-face will not go away. Um, There still will be things that we choose to do in person. But they might be somewhat different. And we might learn that there's possibilities for human communication at a much more deep level through electronic media than what we imagine. So, again, the older ones of us who use, who kind of grew up with today's technology 
tend to think of things like email as the more routine, mechanical sort of medium. But on the other hand, if you look back in time um, and think about love letters, you know, why is it that lovers would write things to each other that they wouldn't say in person? Um, And what it says is that that writing is, particularly handwriting probably, is a richer emotional medium than what we give it credit for. I suspect we're going to learn the same thing and that there could be a kind of poetic of texting. There could Mm. be a kind of emotion of Twittering. There could be a lot of interesting new ways to use digital media that are actually more analog, (laughs) that are uh, kind of communicating emotion. Um, and I think the, only the kids are going to be able to teach us that. Um, and, and that's why I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so interested. Um, one of our colleagues at the Institute, Jane McGonigal, just published a book last week called Reality is Broken. Mm. And what she argues, she's one of the world's leading game designers now. Mm. And she argues, um, and she actually did a TED Talk this last year, which you can find by just Googling Jane and TED. But in her TED Talk, she talks about how gaming can make the world a better place. And, of course, the kids are the ones who know how to do it better than us. And if you're of a gaming mindset, I think that actually does imply a different kind of brain functioning. And it's perfectly suited to this world of the future. It's, you know, I talk about it in the book as the VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And in that world, the VUCA world, gaming is the pedagogy of choice. And digital natives are most prepared to use gaming to engage and succeed in the VUCA world. Well, I want to go back to something you said about empathy and that there's a concern that these kids may actually demonstrate less empathy, have less less capacity for empathy. Yes. What, what, What causes that? Is it simply because they don't have as much personal interaction, or what causes it? You know, uh, well, first of all, I don't think it's true. Oh. Um, I'm just saying that I think that's a, that's a stream of belief in the research oh, community, okay. and it's actually too early to know. Yeah. Um, but if it, what, if it is true, um, I think the, the argument would be that people through electronic media are not to imagine the other person at the other side um, in, in a way that, that promotes a personal connection so they can actually yeah. empathize with that person and, and treat them respectfully. Mm-hmm. Um, as I say, I don't think that's true, but, um, but the argument would be that, for example, in a gaming environment that it teaches you to kill people and uh, there's kind of a brutality that results. Um, and, you know, some of that may be true, um, but I personally think that what, what happens is, is it actually increases empathy, um, but it has to be done through a combination of the values that people bring to the communication right. experience right. And, and also the fact that it's not exclusively virtual. Um, I think what we're going to see is not exclusive either-or choices, but blended choices where you think of the cloud as a virtual overlay on the physical world and you, you see complex weaving of media together, mm-hmm. uh, not isolated choices of, of media. And, and that, I think, overall kind of trains your brain functioning because basically you're, you're expanding your senses, um, not just for in-person type senses, but through electronic media. And, and the most skilled human communicators are those who are actually able to sense things 
through electronic media um, in in a different but yet comparable way to how they would if they were sensing what's going on in a room. Interesting. Well, you know, you talk about um, how leaders moving into the next the next moving into the future, moving into the next ten years or so, are going to have to have um, different skills than they the ones that have brought us here. And I'd like us to get into this a bit because there are a lot of leaders listening to this program and um, a lot of people who are wondering, you know, if they will have what it takes to create a future that matters. So I really appreciate the way you've described these leadership skills. And um, for listeners, you know, they, they can have access to an actually an assessment or how good are they at this? Um, and I'll give the website a little bit later. But you have made this so simple to understand. So let's talk a bit about these specific skills. You say there are ten that we really need to look at. And um, the first one you talk about is you 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 call maker instinct. <laughs> yes. Talk about that. Um. Well, let me first of all say that this isn't your kind of normal leadership development book. <laughs> my, my, uh, my That's favorite. Why we re- like it? <laughs> well, my favorite, my favorite review of it was someone who said this is the first book on leadership that's based on the future rather than on the past and the present. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was exactly what I'm trying to write. Because I'm, I'm a tenure forecaster. I am a social scientist by training, so I have some legitimacy to write about leadership. But I'm not a leadership development person. Mm-hmm. What I was trying to do was, based on our forecast, looking 10 years ahead, identify what are the future leadership skills you would need to thrive in that world um, and then how do those link into what I think of as the enduring leadership skills, those that have always been there. So maker instinct is, in a way, an enduring skill because it's a skill that humans have always had and that everybody has to some extent. Um, if you go to a, a, a beach anywhere in the world and watch little kids play, you'll mm-hmm. see the maker instinct. It's that ability mm-hmm. to dig in the sand and play and kids in different cultures make different things and play different kinds of games, but there's a remarkable similarities to what they do and what they want to make. Mm. So as a leader, what it means is you have to figure out a way to draw out your own urge to make, your own urge to create, your own urge to grow, and then to help others develop that same urge. And part of this is to be more effective at personalizing, at customizing what you're working on. Part of it is also to give you a sense of meaning in this VUCA world, because if you feel like you have some role in making something, it also gives you a sense of meaning, a sense of connection to that something, but also to life. Right. I just went back into all everything you said about the, you know, the digital natives and the young kids that are really um, coming up there. They build, they create all the time. Yes. On- Yes, exactly. Um, my favorite uh, in-person experience of makers is is um, a group of uh, fair that's sponsored every year called the Maker Fair yeah. um, out here in the Bay Area. It draws 120,000 people now on a weekend, and you can track it through Make Magazine. Uh, but one of the spin-offs of the first Maker Fair is um, a fascinating site called Instructables.com. Instructables.com, hmm. and um, it basically shows uh, 
makers how to make things and share how they make it. So okay. it's it's and it's got the most beautiful, simple interface for demonstrating how to make things. It's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been quite commercially successful too. And now a number of businesses are using it as, for contests among makers. And um, you don't have to make something from scratch to get that sense. There's also a group here in the Bay Area that has two um, shops called Tech Shop, which is like a home gym for makers. Um, mm-hmm. And you buy uh, monthly memberships and you get access to state-of-the-art tools. Um, and you're going to see more things like that where it's not only making it by yourself, but it's um, making with others. So it's not just do it yourself, it's do it uh-huh. ourselves that's starting to happen. Mm-hmm. In community. In, well, in community is, I think, a big part of the attraction. You know, we've always had solo makers, but we've never had the ability to connect makers in the way we've mm-hmm. had, uh, we have now. And I think in this in this highly uncertain world, if you feel like you make something or you're contributing in some way, and again, you don't have to make it from scratch. One thing the tech shop people talk about is how if you just push a button and something comes out the other end, you feel to a small degree but a significant degree that you made it. <laughs> we do like to own things. <laughs> well, yeah, or at least feel connected to them. Right. You know, it doesn't right, necessarily right. own in the sense of control. Right. Um, I also um, am intrigued by the uh, the, the mini um, the the mini car. Uh, when you mm-hmm. when you buy a mini over the web now, uh, you actually customize it to quite a high degree, um, and then as it goes through the assembly line, you start to get messages from your own car. Um, and as you get near the end of the car, the messages get increasingly personal. It says, here's, here's how I look now. I'm going to be coming off. I'm really anxious to come home. <laughs> and by the time you get the, the car, uh, you feel like you've made it and you didn't do anything wow. other than just look in on the assembly line. <laughs> That's fantastic. Wow. Yeah, I think it's very sensitive to trying yeah. to personalize the brand. And many owners are very dedicated because mm-hmm. they feel like they they customized it and that it's it's kind of their car. Mm. Well, another skill you say is important is clarity. Yes. Now, now, this is something we've heard about for years. Of course, leaders have to have clarity. What's different about the way you see it? What's different is the VUCA world. Um, so clarity's always been important, but it's never been so difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very hard to be clear. In a, in a VUCA world. You can probably see this most clearly in, in our politics. You know, we, if you look at the, the kind of experience in Washington over the last 10 years, there's been a number of examples where people have been very clear, but in the end were wrong. Mm-hmm. So that's false clarity. Um, and you certainly want to avoid that. So the dilemma is how can you be simple, but not simplistic? Mm-hmm. And yet, the VUCA world invites simplistically, simplistic thinking. And indeed, it, it, you know, clarity gets rewarded in the VUCA world, even if it's wrong. Mm. But the challenge, of course, is that it usually catches up to you. So you get right. rewarded in the short term because you're so clear and it looks so simple and all, it's right. all right. But you know, six months later, you find out, oh, that wasn't so simple after all. <laughs> right, right. And then you're in big trouble. Um, but it's a very tricky time now to, to be clear. Um, as, so as a, as a leader, you, you sometimes kind of leads us into the next leadership skill, which right. is dilemma flipping. You know, the big dilemma is how, do you, how can you be simple without being simplistic? 
Mm-hmm. And increasingly in the VUCA world, you have more and more of these kind of dilemmas that you can't solve. Uh, they won't go away, and yet you've got to figure out how to win anyway. Right, right. And so we have to look at these dilemmas not as problems. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think that's where um, we are at kind of a, a shift. You know, the last decade was, was really driven by problem solvers. It was driven by engineers. It was driven by first stage of the digital age. And we came to believe that we could control things to a greater extent than we actually can, or at least than we can now. And the next decade is going to be driven by biology, by the global well-being economy, and by people who know how to win with dilemmas. And, and that's really hard. Now, it's not that problems go away. There's still plenty of problems to solve. Mm-hmm. But leaders won't get the satisfaction of solving them. It'll right. be lower-level leaders and people who work for leaders who solve the problems. Um, people who are leaders will have to live with and thrive with dilemmas. Right. Well, there will be plenty of them to do that with. Well, it's so We're going to talk more about this when we come right back. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. If you lead a team of any kind, you need to listen to this show. Tune in to Leading with Emotional Intelligence, hosted by Esther Orioli. Esther provides you with the tools and techniques you need to harness the power of EQ, to stop setting goals, and start changing behaviors in your organization. Get the latest concepts in EQ from a top-of-the-house perspective and have your questions answered on air. Leading with Emotional Intelligence is broadcast live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito, and we're speaking with Bob Johansson. So we're moving through the leadership skills, the 10 skills for the future that you, know, you think, Bob, really need to be focused on for leaders in order for people to be successful. So the next skill is immersive learning ability. Yes. <laughs> Sounds simple enough. 
Yes, and that kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier about um, gaming as being the medium of choice for the VUCA mm. world. So immersive learning means the ability to put yourself in a situation that makes you uncomfortable in the pit of your stomach, and yet you're able to learn from it. So it, it could be going to another country, for example, or kind of learning cross-culturally. It could be mm. learning from your kids uh, and who are digital natives. It could be playing a game, immersing yourself in a game. And um, the military is way ahead of business and government on this front um, in their use of war gaming and mm. their use of leadership gaming. Um, and I talk in the book quite a lot about this. I was lucky to be at uh, the Army War College, the graduate student for uh, graduate school for the Army at Carlisle, Pennsylvania, the week before 9-11. And I've gone back a dozen or so times since then to facilitate exchanges of top military leaders and top business leaders. But the big lesson from that is that the Army in particular takes people as volunteers that in many cases wouldn't be able to be hired by good companies because they don't have a strong enough education background. They make them into very high-performing people almost exclusively through the use of gaming. So really? it's true that today's video games tend to be too sexual and too violent, but I'm talking about the medium of gaming, not the mm-hmm. content of today's right. video games. Mm-hmm. And if you go on the Army's website, you'll see a state-of-the-art video game. If you play it and you get a high score, you get a call from a recruiter. If you join the Army, you play games your whole career, uh, including preparing to go to war and including uh, helping to recover from post-traumatic stress, if you get that. And it's all gaming-based. Now, that's immersive learning. So I think as as, um, leaders thinking 10 years ahead, we just have to be very good at creating those immersive learning ability situations where we can put ourselves in the position of our customers or put ourselves in Mm -hmm. the position of our employees. We have to essentially become anthropologists. Um, And gaming is a medium that allows us to go into those worlds in a low-risk way and try out different skills. Right, right. How is this different from simulation? Um, it not re- it's not really different at all. The, the language is messy. Um, yeah. Generally, simulation is more quantitative and more structured, and you yeah. know, gaming is more playful. But I, 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 have, I have not seen a useful definition distinction. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. uh, now, there is a confusion because some people think of gaming as gambling. You know, and oh, I, I'm, sure. not, yeah. I'm not talking here about Las Vegas, although there, right. are, there are gaming <laughs> aspects of right. gambling. Um, Last week I was down uh, doing a talk uh, in Orlando, and the conference I was doing it for um, got uh, behind-the-scenes access to uh, the new Harry Potter experience mm. at Universal Studios. Yeah. So, so I was there at Harry Potter with no lines um, and got to spend an evening there. And mm-hmm. some, of, some of that is the, that's some of the best rendering of three-dimensional virtual realities and augmented realities and, and, a, and a serious touch of gaming that I've ever seen just at the interface level. Really amazing wow. in the castle where you kind of go through and you're riding on a broomstick. Uh, now, that's for <laughs> playful, fun reasons. But you we're able to do that now for serious reasons. And as Jane uh-huh. McGonigal talks about, we're able to do that to help to understand and address the dilemmas of the world and make the world a better place. So, you know, Jane's subtitle is Why Games Make Us Better and How They Can Change the World. Mm-hmm. Now, that's such a mm-hmm. different, more positive frame. I still, find, I still find a lot of smart parents 
who forbid their kids to use, to play video games. Yeah, yeah. And it's very understandable and very wrong. Um, what you have to do with your kids is to explain your values, explain why you're concerned, and then go there with them. Mm. And and figure out how to navigate, how to make choices, how to stay safe, right. um, and yet also how to engage in that just amazingly powerful learning medium. Uh, and the, <laughs> the learning potential of gaming is just way ahead of our schools. It's way ahead right. of our corporations. Right. The only people who get it in a really strong way now are the military and our uh, things like forest service and police and fire. Sounds like there could be an opportunity to teach parents through an immersive learning situation exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. to ha- how to work with their kids around this. Yeah. Exactly. I think it would be so, so good. And, and you know, this is the biggest challenge of parenting today is, is how to engage in the gaming world. Um, and, and I just, I just don't see a lot of parents who, who get it yet. They don't realize how important it is. And I, I liken it. I grew up in a small town in Illinois, um, and I wanted to visit Chicago. And my parents said, oh, no, it's too dangerous. You can't go to Chicago. We're just from a little farming town. And gradually they said, okay, we'll go there with you, and we'll help you navigate Chicago mm-hmm. in a safe way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's exactly what right. parents have to do with video right. gaming. And if you're lucky, you know, they'll choose a socially constructive game like Sims or Spore is one of my favorites now. It teaches systems biology. More um, likely they're going to want to play Worlds of Warcraft or <laughs> Grand Theft Auto. But, right. again, you go there with them. You right. go there with them. Or right. Dante's Inferno. You know, there's a, a, that came out last year. It, it's poetry. They actually published a book at the same time. And they... Uh, actually thought to gear the course toward, uh, you know, high school English mm-hmm. programs, mm-hmm. thinking that they could hook the adolescent boys that way. And, and it, <laughs> I think that makes sense. <laughs> it does make sense. So one of the skills you talk about is bioempathy. What's that? Yes. So bioempathy is the ability to learn from the principles of nature and apply them to organizations. So when I said earlier we're shifting from a world driven by engineering to a world driven by biology, that's bioempathy. And this global health economy is the larger personification of it. It isn't just sick care. It isn't just wellness. It's well-being in a world that's quite frightening. Uh, And there's going to be all kinds of new kinds of commercial opportunities around that. But to see them, leaders are going to have to... um, modify their vocabularies uh, to talk, uh, you know, less in machine metaphors and more in nature metaphors. Mm. And that's kind of our challenge. So a game like Spore, uh, Will Wright game, uh, published by Electronic Arts, uh, that game is teaching systems biology and it's immersive learning and it's bioempathy. So this is the ideal parental game. If you can, right. if you can get your kids to play spore with you, um, that is the parental sweet spot for the future. <laughs> right. So you talk about um, something I think is just so vital: constructive depolarizing. I mean, yes. I, I don't believe in my lifetime I have ever experienced a more polarized yes. sense of our world than yes. I do today. It's really um, true. Yeah. Yeah, it's really true. Um, you know, in a VUCA world, um, it's beyond the threshold that some people can deal with. Um, they just can't live with the complexity that 
is accurately reflected in the VUCA world. So that they have to go for a simplistic solution, which means you're going to see a lot of polarities. And certainly, you know, we saw it in the last political election, which, you know, it seemed like from the post-election analysis that mostly it was voting against anybody who happened to be in office with some pretty simplistic motivations. Um, now, there were some that weren't, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not here trying to take a political stance. I think right. um, polarization is happening on the right and the left, um, and it's a big, big challenge. Um, one of my favorite examples, um, we work a lot with Procter & Gamble, and in the early days of uh, the Internet, actually before it started to spread, there was a really interesting, very polarized, very simplistic rumor that the logo on Procter & Gamble products was a symbol of devil worship. Um, and and you kind of say what? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> but it turned out the rumor was passed. It started in a conservative evangelical Christian seminary in Kentucky, across the river from Cincinnati, where um, P and G is based. Um, and it started to spread, and there was a boycott on P and G products by um, evangelical groups. And it actually started to have an effect. P and G's first response was to say they would sue anyone who said that their symbol was a symbol of devil worship. And that actually did work for one company that was spreading the rumor. Mm. They got a cease and desist. But mm. it actually didn't work in terms of stopping the spread of the rumor. But what P&G did, was, which is brilliant constructive depolarizing, is they went to their own employees who were conservative evangelical mm-hmm. Christians and said, um, can you help us come up with a strategy here? Mm. And those same conservative Christians went to visit the seminary where the rumors started um, and said, you know, we're here to talk to you. We're also conservative evangelical oh. Christians. We're twice born just like you. And we're also employees of Procter & Gamble, which is a company that, you know, you've been uh, saying is doing some things that really aren't true. And, and, and you must not have understood because we know that you understand that it's not Christian mm-hmm. to tell a lie. Oh, well. Yeah. And that worked. So they were able to to move into that in a way that was not adversarial. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what constructive depolarizing is. It's mm-hmm. the ability to calm the situation and then to look for terms of engagement where you can have a respectful conversation. And you're not going to please everybody. I mean, people still boycott P&G products periodically, and mm-hmm. you can't reach everybody if you're a big company. Um, but you can at least calm the situation and depolarize it mm-hmm. in a way that they did uh, in in that particular case. Well, there's two more um, that you talk about: quiet transparency and rapid prototyping, which are fairly straightforward. Yes. Um, quiet transparency, being open and authentic about what matters to you, but don't advertise yourself. Yes. Um, rapid prototyping, everybody understands that. You know, creating um, quick versions of innovations, and you know doing more of the get it out there and then um, let it evolve into a product that works for people based on the feedback. Um, And so that means there's going to be some failures. That's for sure. Another one that I'm curious about is smart mob organizing. What is that? Um, That was actually uh, Howard Reingold's term originally, uh, and Howard referred to it as an aggregation of people organizing through the intelligent use of social media. So I think of it as a leadership skill. 
as the ability to find these kind of smart mobs of people to organize around a particular purpose. And then if you can make it more permanent, more sustainable, then it becomes a commons. Uh, and the neat thing about these electronically amplified uh, commons in the cloud is that they, there isn't the same kind of scarcity issues that there are in physical commons. The more people you add to a virtual commons, the more positive it is, the more network effects there are. So, for example, when Jimmy Wales founded Wikipedia, he had this outrageous vision, which he actually expressed with great clarity, um, to create a free encyclopedia for everybody in the world. Uh, and he organized it as a smart mob, beginning with a few people who were passionately interested in different topics. And he set up this amazing model of reciprocity where people gave their time to do editing and kind of owned the editing space. Um, and as it grew, it became more and more sustainable. So now it's clearly a community and it's sustainable, and it's, what, six times the size of Encyclopedia Britannica. So mm -hmm. it's become a commons. And right. that is the ultimate, the most complex of the 10 future leadership skills, uh, is that ability to create shared assets. Uh, and the only way to get there is to rapid prototype your way there. Right. Uh, and that's what right. Jimmy did. Um, and you know, I think of rapid prototyping as the ability to fail early, fail often, and mm -hmm. fail cheaply. Well, you know, I think um, many of our organizations today have a real hard time with that. So, <laughs> it is. It you is. Know, and right. I think they're probably going to, yeah. you know, die on the vine because of it, because I, uh, our um, society doesn't have much patience for waiting for products. So. Yeah, I'm afraid uh, that's right. I, most companies now say that they support rapid prototyping, and you've got the case I use in, in the book chapter is IDEO and how they use it in the design process, the IDEO university process. And, and you know, if you go to IDEO for a product design, you know, they'll, they'll tell you, well, it's going to take five months to do it, but we'll do the first prototype on the first afternoon. Uh, and that's how rapid prototyping right, works. Right, they, right, you go right. through hundreds of drafts of things, right. and the assumption that that's the only way to learn. And in the VUCA world, it is the only way to learn. You can't do these kind of linear, um, more controlled production kind of processes. Right. Well, Bob, we have come to the end of the show, and I know we could talk for many more hours. Um, and I want to let everybody know that they can buy the book and learn more about you at bkconnection.com. That's the Barrett Kohler website. And the book is Leaders Make the Future, 10 New Leadership Skills for an Uncertain Age. And, uh, boy, this has been really fascinating. Really appreciate that you have been here and brought your sense of the future to us. And if, if people want to know more about um, the Institute for the Future, they can go to iftf.org, and um, there is blog and Twitter feed there, too. Thank you, Bob, so much for being with us. We'll have to have you back again to talk about more of the future. You're welcome. Glad to, glad to spend some time with you, and I hope it does uh, empower people to think about and make a better future. Terrific. Remember, everyone, to think big. The world <laughs> will be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito.
Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.